welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university and college students and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. So glad you're here. Deconstruction is a word that, at the popular level at least, has come to denote this idea of getting rid of some of the toxic religious views and rethinking faith. As people are in the process of deconstruction, they don't need gatekeepers. What they do need, however, are faithful guides who can walk alongside them and provide wisdom, pastoral care, and prayer. Dr. A.J. Swoboda has written a book on deconstruction called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. I invited A.J. to speak for this night. He agreed and he joined us live in the room on Zoom from Eugene, Oregon. A.J. is a professor at Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. Before he was a professor, he was a campus pastor for like 10 years and was also a church planner in Portland, Oregon. I hope that you are challenged by this talk. What I want to do tonight um, is I want to talk about a really big word. Um, I want to introduce you to a word that maybe you, you likely have heard, um, but I, I want to give some context to it. And I want to talk about um, the concepts of deconstruction and doubt. And what I'd like to do is, is set a framework for how um, to walk through experiences in our Christian life where we walk through either doubt or deconstruction, where we begin to question our faith. And I want to suggest this evening uh, that it is possible to walk through those experiences and be faithful to God in the midst of it. And so I want to describe what, what I'm going to call the theological journey. And I want to, I want to actually take some time and look at, uh, in, the, in the Bible, a story of a man named Thomas. Um, but before we get there, let me, let me set some terms. Let me kind of define some things so that we're on the same page. So <clears throat> I want to talk about this thing called the theological journey. And a theological journey is this. You and I, if you are a, a follower of Jesus, right, if you are seeking to pursue the way of Jesus in this world, be it on campus or uh, just in life at your job, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your dorm room, wherever it may be, that all of us are on a journey to understanding about God. Um, I met Jesus when I was 16 years old in my math class in high school. Um, I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, I was raised in a, a kind of nominal, uh, nominally spiritual uh, upbringing as an only child, and I was 16 years old, and I had uh, a radical encounter with uh, Jesus of all places in my, uh, my my math class in high school, my my sophomore year geometry level math class, math class. and uh, I jokingly said, I think this is the only time in human history God's ever worked through a math class, because uh, to this day I can't stand math. Um, I'm a theologian by trade, and I don't like math at all, uh, but I, God met me at this very unique time in my life, and I have been following Jesus since. I'm 40 years old, and here's what I've learned about myself. I have learned that over those, over those years, over those you know, 24 years or however many years it's been since I started following Jesus, um, that it has taken a lot of time to learn about God. And that some things that I think today, I didn't think 10 years ago. And that some things I used to think, um, I now look back and go, that's not what uh, I believe about Jesus anymore. And yet I still love Jesus all the more. 
I could understand if somebody would say that that's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty dangerous place to be is your faith always changing. And I like to point out um, in my marriage of 18 years, uh, I, I'm deeply committed to my marriage and I love my wife uh, with everything. And I think she loves me too. I think we have a love for one another. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that when you love somebody, it takes a long time to get to know that person. And my love for my wife has never changed, but my knowledge of her updates just about every day. Um, I love my wife very much, but I don't understand her very much. <laughs> I love her with all my heart, but it has taken a lot of time to learn and grow about what I know about my wife. And I think for a lot of us, uh, maybe we've never named that in our relationship with God, that maybe we've loved God for a really long time, but we've come to learn that um, we've grown in what we think, and we don't think the same things that we do. And in, in a way, that's a journey we're all going to go through, right? Is, is we're all going to grow and learn um, more and more and more about who God is. And I think, isn't that the, isn't that the goal? of the Christian life. Isn't that the goal, right? Paul says in, in, in his writings that we see uh, dimly, we see imperfectly through glass that is, that is unclear. We can't see perfectly. Um, but we also believe uh, that we will one day see him as he is. And we will see him in his glory. And when we see him in his glory, we will see him fully. Right. But until then, um, until that moment, um, we haven't arrived yet. So I wrote, I wrote this book uh, a number of years ago, or I, it took me about, I should say, this book is a culmination of about 20 years of my life, 10 years uh, as a college pastor and about 10 years as a church planter of watching college students, college age people through this, of leaving their homes, leaving the homes in which they were raised, their Christian homes and environments in which they were raised and go into this big world uh, of college. And getting to sit in the front row and watch what happens when students leave their homes and go into this big world. And I've just had the unique opportunity to sit and watch what happens when we grow up in our faith. And one of of the stories that has captured me is the story of a a young man that uh, I write about in my book, After Doubt, and and the stories of a young young man by the name of Phil. Um, Phil has a, a pretty interesting story. He was raised um, in middle America, which in the United States, kind of middle America is the more conservative uh, part of our uh, part of our national landscape. <clears throat> and uh, Phil had been raised in this just beautiful, awesome Christian home, uh, loved God, loved the church. And he grew up in middle America and he got an internship uh, in Portland, Oregon, where I was pastoring at the time. Portland is one of the most kind of progressive secular, secular cities uh, in America, they say about Portland that uh, there are more nonprofits uh, per capita than any city in the world, and there are also more strip clubs per capita than any city in the world. It's a very complicated city. And for 10 years, I was a pastor there. My wife and I planted a church that continues to this day before I entered uh, the life in higher ed. And uh, Phil had moved from middle America to Portland for a job. And some way, I don't know how it was possible, but he found uh, an email through the website uh, for our, our church, emailed me and said, hey, I'd love to connect with you and start going to church. So I said to Phil, I'd love to meet. Uh, so we met in my office and we 
I met, met Phil and he is just exuberant. I remember sitting with him and just feeling like he, he is so excited to serve God in Portland and uh, serve the city and be on mission and be a part of the church and grow in his faith. I mean, he's just so excited. And we find ways for him to be, you know, involved. He can serve on the sound team. He, he had been a part of this, the worship team in his home church. Uh, and I just remember that meeting, like just leaving. And he was so jazzed uh, to be in Portland. And he, he comes to church for a couple weeks uh, in a row. And then I just notice that he uh, disappears. And truth be told, I, I sort of just forgot about Phil. I know as a pastor, you're not supposed to forget anybody, but we're human beings too. And I kind of lost touch with Phil. I just forgot about him. And about a year later, completely out of the blue, I get this email from Phil. And Phil wants to meet again. But this time, uh, he wants to meet in my office and he wants to process with me his journey, which I, 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 I didn't know what the journey had been. So I, 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 it's all news to me. And we're sitting in my office. Uh, he comes into the same office. He's sitting in the exact same spot. And he sits down and he tells me what has happened over the course of the last year. Uh, over the course of the last year, he had a, got a roommate, uh, and one of the roommates was um, uh, one of the roommates was uh, one of his coworkers uh, who um, was a Mormon. And uh, but he he had kind of his new roommate Charles had rejected his faith in college and had become a secular humanist. And um, Phil starts telling me about that every night they would sit up and they would just talk. And soon enough, the conversation turned to faith and the Bible and Christianity. And Phil, um, Charles had all of these incredible critiques of religion that Phil had never heard about. You know, qu questions about the Bible, where the Bible come from, questions about uh, sexuality, questions about the church uh, in culture, questions about all the, the sensitive stuff. And Charles had all of these really interesting thoughts. And Phil just started to go into crisis mode. He didn't have answers to the questions. He didn't know what to do. And so what became one evening conversation turned into every night conversation, turned into a basically a whole year. Uh, Phil said, you know, it basically became a year of just listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and Googling questions about the Bible. And, and, and he's, he's sitting there telling me this, all this stuff. And he says, you know, I've come to a place where I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore. And I, and I say, well, tell me more about that. What do you mean? You don't know if you're a Christian anymore. And he goes, well, I have all these questions. You know, I have questions about the Bible. where did the Bible come from? I have questions about sexuality. I have questions about, he, he says, I started smoking weed. I got questions about that. I like it a lot. And he goes, I don't, what am I supposed to do with that? And he has all these, just these, these questions and no one to answer them, no one to bring uh, any sense of resolution to him. And at this point in the conversation, he starts to cry. And he said, he goes, he goes, I, it's not that I don't want to love God. He goes, I want to love God. I just have all these questions. And so he, he starts to cry. A tear is kind of coming down his face. And he looks at me and he goes, I mean, this was the pinnacle moment in our conversation. He goes, he goes, I got all these questions, man. And he goes, am I allowed to be a Christian? <laughs> and I'm looking at him and I have this sort of epiphany that I'm, I'm not looking at a person. Um, I'm looking at a whole generation of people who have real and legitimate questions about God, about Jesus, and about the Bible. 
but have absolutely no idea how to ask them in such a way to follow Jesus through the midst of them. I walked with Phil for the next three years. Uh, Phil just last month graduated from the University of Portland with uh, a philosophy degree just a couple months ago. Uh, he wants to become uh, he wants to become a philosopher and he wants to be a Christian and he wants to serve people with really good philosophy. And his for the last you know number of years, he has sought Jesus in the midst of all of his questions. But it's been a really hard journey. And what Phil, I think, I think what I wrote this book about and what I want to talk about for a few moments is I think that that story probably on some level is a story you've experienced. And that is that you, maybe you're, maybe you're like Phil, you love God and you love Jesus, but you have some deep questions that you don't know what to do with. And I want to talk about that. What do we do? I want to ask, is it possible? to question your faith without losing it. And what, what I want to suggest is that it is not only possible, it's the goal. And that actually people who love God a lot walk through seasons of questions because they love God a lot. And I suspect that some of us have questions in our own heart, in our own mind, and we worry if we're still allowed to be Christians. And what I want to say to you tonight is I want to say that if you are struggling to believe, that is the sign that you actually believe. And that if you have those questions, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means you're probably really struggling to believe. That's a sign that you believe. By God's sheer grace, we actually have a story about this in the Bible. Um, this isn't the only time in Christian history that stories like Phil have happened. And one of those stories is uh, found in the Gospel of John. We're introduced to uh, a character by the name of Thomas. And Thomas was one of the 12 disciples. He was one of the named disciples. We know about a number of the other disciples. We know about, for example, Matthew, who's a tax collector. We know Simon the Zealot. He probably worked against the state. He wanted the whole thing to come down. Um, we know John uh, was one of the disciples, although he never mentions himself in the gospel. He just goes by the one who Jesus loves, which is kind of a cool uh, nickname. You know, he just gives us his nickname. I'm the one who Jesus loves. I've always loved that none of the other disciples call him that. It's almost like they're like, we had a nickname for him, but that was not what we called him. Um, you got John, you got all these disciples, and then you got Thomas. And there's not a lot known about Thomas. Thomas is kind of a quiet figure. Uh, in the gospel stories, but he has one very important moment in his, in his, in, in, in the gospel narratives. And it is this story at the end of Jesus's life after Jesus has resurrected, he's died and resurrected. And Thomas is struggling to believe. He is struggling to believe whether uh, Jesus actually uh, resurrected or not. And this, so this is how the story goes. Uh, this is how the story of, uh, of Thomas goes. Now, Thomas, who is also known as Didymus, so we have kind of his nickname here, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now, pause for just a second. The, the narrative goes something like this. Jesus dies on a Friday. On Saturday, he's in a tomb. And on Sunday morning, he resurrects. And sometime in that day, around that day, uh, Jesus appears to the disciples. And in fact, the description is he just walks into the room. You've got to love that he can resurrect, he can the resurrected body, he can just walk through walls. 
And he, he shows up and he reveals himself. But as, as John tells us, he wasn't there. Um, he was not in the room when this happened. Now, I, I want you to just imagine, you, you've probably experienced at some point in your life, um, feeling like you'd missed out on something. This, I want you to imagine the ultimate case of FOMO, of, of, mi- of fear of missing out. Thomas has missed out <laughs> on the resurrected Jesus. I mean, remarkable. What a thing to miss out on, right? And so can you imagine what that was like? Other, the other disciples saw Jesus, but he hadn't seen Jesus yet. So John continues. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Thomas says to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. I want you to notice that Thomas creates a framework through which he will believe. Only as long as these things happen, I'll believe. A week later, <laughs> this is the this this part of the story is just vintage Jesus right here. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. You you almost get the sense that Thomas is like, I ain't gonna miss out again. I'm not gonna miss it again. I refuse to miss it again. Notice this. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now I want you to notice how long it took Jesus to show up a whole week. And why that's so critical for us in this conversation about the theological journey growing and being transformed is we are going to walk through seasons of doubt. We are going to walk through seasons of, of, of challenged faith. And I think a week is a long time. Jesus does not rush in to solve Thomas's faith crisis. He lets him experience it for a week. Now, there's an author by the name of Dallas Willard who years ago talked about um, Jesus doing the same thing in the Lazarus story. You remember when Lazarus was resurrected after his death? And um, it says that when Jesus finds out that Lazarus had died, he, a couple days before he goes to um, the place where Lazarus's body had been laid. And uh, Dallas Willard makes this comment that sometimes Jesus lets us stew in the question for a while. And I, I, you know, I, I do wonder what I have questions about God that are unresolved. And I have questions about Jesus and the Bible that I don't have answers to. And I would love if God would just show up and give me the answer. But there is something inspired about the fact that Jesus does not show up for a week. Because here's what happens. When you have a big question, a big challenge with your faith, and Jesus doesn't show you the answer immediately, here's what happens. It makes you a deeper person. It actually turns you into a patient person. And more, here's one of the mysteries of the Christian life. More than just wanting you to have the answers, God wants you to be the kind of person who can steward the answers when you get them. And, And by that, God will put you through seasons where you need to grow in patience so that when you do receive the truth, you handle it with with grace. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And and this is remarkable because, um, and a lot of Bible commentators have pointed this out, 
Jesus resurrects with scars. And, and you, can, you can only imagine what those scars look like. The scars on his hands, the scars on his side from where he was stabbed and water and blood flowed out from the cross. But it is remarkable. A lot of Bible commentators have pointed out that when Jesus resurrects, his body has the physical markings of his death. And, and even more so as we're talking about right, ministering to our friends and people that we know that are walking through doubts and struggles and deconstruction. I'm, I'm struck that, that Jesus's posture of ministry was that he ministered to people out of his own scars. And, and by that, I mean, he ministered in such a way that he ministered out of the very place where he experienced pain. You know, as a teacher and as a, as a pastor, I can say this, listen, I can minister out of all my victories. And there are points in my life where there have been victories. My wife and I were infertile for a season and we had a kid. He's a miracle. He's an absolute miracle. Um, there have been some victories in my life, but it doesn't work <laughs> when I minister to people who are doubting out of my own victories. The only way to minister to somebody walking through doubt is that you have to minister to them out of your own scars. You've got to minister out of your own places in your life that have been challenges. I stand in front of 150 students a week in my undergraduate classes, and I talk about the Bible and, and Jesus, and I, I try to teach my students the way of Jesus. I will say this. I think I have more of an impact on my students when I stand up in front of them and I tell them about the ways I'm struggling to believe. And yet I still believe, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief, that I, I have the ability to believe in the midst of my doubts and struggles, ministering out of scars is very powerful. And his posture was that he ministered out of his scars. And Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, I'm going to tell you what Thomas is saying there. He's calling Jesus God. He is attributing him as divine. He does not say my really good teacher. He does not say my eloquent rabbi. He does not say, my great pastor. He says, my Lord and my God. He's saying, Jesus, you're God. And it's notable. Jesus doesn't stop him. He lets him worship him. Why? Because Jesus is God. Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In this story it, it, of, of this man named Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, but that's actually unfair. He's never called Doubting Thomas in the New Testament. He's only called Thomas. I, I want to I suggest that he, three things happen here. Three things happen to Thomas uh, that are really important. The first thing is this, is, doubt, is Thomas, he does doubt. He doubts for a week. He does doubt. I'm going to bet at some point in your Christian journey, you're going to undergo um, the process of beginning to rethink what you believe about Jesus. Um, and I, I want to say that part of following Jesus is going through that process. Not the whole thing, but part of it is. Um, in my book, I talk about three stages that we often go through in our, in our theological journeys. These stages that we go through in our belief structure. Our construction stages, right, are those years when we first received the good news of Jesus. It's those years that we first received the first truths. It's those years that we were first taught how to talk about God. And I can remember those construction years for me. Those construction years were when I first became a Christian, I learned how to read the Bible. I learned about the Trinity. I learned how to share my faith. I learned how to repent. 
I learned so many good things in that construction stage. I was taught how to walk as a baby Christian. And I look back on that stage and I'm so grateful. But here's a story. None of us receive the faith from a perfect community. And as a result of that, some of us, all of us, have realized at moments that we, ha- we were handed the gospel, we were handed the faith, and it was beautiful and good, but we were also handed some stuff that was not good. There's a, a little book by Eugene Peterson uh, in one of his books on pastoral theology, and he, he says this. He says, you know, when you go to the hospital, you go to get healthy, right? Well, it turns out sometimes when you go to the hospital, you get sick because there are sick people at the hospital. And there's a whole kind of disease called iatrogenic diseases that you get when you go to the hospital. And when I think about that construction stage, it is a beautiful, sacred time where we learn how to walk in Jesus. And we are also handed probably some ideas that aren't true. And I'll tell you one of those things that happened to me. I was taught in those early years at that awesome evangelical church that taught me how to love Jesus. It handed me the early faith. It handed me the Bible. It handed me evangelism, all that stuff. But it also gave me a vision of women that says that women are basically a footnote in the story of God's kingdom. And what I had to do later on in my journey is I had to realize I was given some good things. And there were also some things that really needed to be rethought. And that led to what we call the deconstruction stage. And the deconstruction stage is this period of time where sometimes we question the the ideas that we've been given. And we may even undo some of them. Now, I want to say here that there is the difference between wise deconstruction and unwise deconstruction. Here's what I think the difference is. Wise deconstruction is this. When I'm sitting with a student in my office who comes to me and says, Dr. Swoboda, I love God with all my heart. I love Jesus with everything in me. And I'm willing to do away with anything that gets in the way of following Jesus. That to me is healthy deconstruction. When we are so hungry for God, we are willing to change our beliefs to reflect the God of the Bible. That's good deconstruction. But unfortunately, and you and I know this to be true, a lot of the deconstruction that we see happening right now is not people who are seeking to love God, but really it's we're doing away with our belief structures. We're doing away with the faith. We're doing away with the Bible, not because we love God, because really at the end of the day, what we want is we want to be able to sleep with who we want. We want to smoke what we want to smoke. We want to do our own thing. And that form of deconstruction, I would say, is very unwise because the the goal, the motivation is not to pursue Jesus. It's to do away with authority so I can do whatever I want. And I think we've got to come to terms with the the fact that there is a difference between wise deconstruction and unwise deconstruction. What's the goal? Are we doing it because we really love God? Or are we doing it because really we just want to be able to do what we want to do? And that is the stage that Thomas finds himself in. He's in the stage of wondering. He's doubting. He's struggling. He doesn't know what to believe. He doesn't know up from down. He's struggling. And here's what's interesting to me. So I'm a, I'm a Pentecostal. I'll tell you what that means. That means I'm a, I'm a guy who just really, really likes the Holy Spirit, big time. And I'm going to tell you this. One of, one of my problems um, as a Pentecostal, uh, one, of, one of the things that I often see as a, a Pentecostal is that we make uh, all these promises for God, right? If you, if you truly love God, all this good stuff's going to happen. If you love God, you're going to get married. If you love God, you're going to get all this stuff. If you love God, it's all going to work out. And here's a problem when we give those kinds of promises and they don't work out. All of a sudden, people have to start questioning the ideas they were given. Because the truth of the matter is, sometimes you love Jesus and you don't get everything you want. 
that deconstruction stage can be really difficult. But here's the thing, it doesn't have to be the end. There's another step, reconstruction. And reconstruction is when we come back to those beliefs and we come back to Jesus. We return to the one that, we've, that we loved. We return to our first love. But for so many people, we think that deconstruction or doubt is the end of the journey. And I want to say, no, it's not. For some of us, it's, it's, it's the path to coming back to Jesus. In the parable of the prodigal son, you have a son who runs away, who has to run away in order to be able to come back. Powerful. The second thing I want you to see is that Thomas, it's not that he doesn't stop trusting. He actually keeps trusting. The problem is he trusts his own eyes over, over the resurrected Jesus. And so he trusts in his own eyes and he says, I'll believe, but only as long as um, I can touch him in, in a, on his side in his hands. And why I think that's important is this. Whenever we do doubt Jesus, it usually entails us putting new trust in something else. And that is, I don't think we ever stop believing. It's just that we stop believing in Jesus and start place, placing our trust in other things. And there was this guy named Michael Polanyi years ago who wrote a series of books about science. And he says, you know, at the end of the day, scientists embody tremendous trust in order to do the work of scientific uh, inquiry. You can't do science without faith. And the point he's trying to make here is he's saying there's no way in the world even to be objective without faith. I mean, you even hear it in our language. We put, I, tr I have faith in science. I mean, you, there's, there's faith in that. And I think the point is that, friends, if we stop trusting in Jesus, then what is the other thing we put our trust in? It, it is, so Thomas, he says, I'll believe in you, Jesus, so long as, and then he gives a set of demands. And I think we do that to God a lot. We say, God, I will love you so long as, dot, 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 dot. I will love you as long as you think the way that I think about that social issue. God, I'll love you as long as you give me the spouse by the time I graduate. God, I'll love you as long as I get the internship. God, I'll love you as long as my mom is free of cancer. God, I'll love you as long as... That's what Thomas does. And ultimately, that's not loving God. That's loving our wants. That's loving the God of our stomach. You see, to love God is to love God for who God is, not for who we want God to be. Because God is worthy to be loved as he is. He's not a shapeshifter. He doesn't change in order to get us to love him. Thank God, because that's what we all do to each other, as we are constantly changing so that other people will love us. I am so grateful God is not like us <laughs> in that way, that God is fundamentally different than us. And, and I think that the third thing that I just want to point out is Thomas eventually returns in worship. And, and that his story of doubt is not the end of the story. He returns to belief. He returns to faith. And, and why that's so important is eventually, guess what, what Thomas does? Thomas eventually goes, after this story, history tells us, he goes to India. And if you've ever met an Indian Christian with the last name Thomas, there's a reason why. Because Thomas went to India and proclaimed the gospel. And there are thousands of years of history of Christians in India right now who believe in Jesus because Thomas experienced doubt and he didn't let it be the end and he kept sticking with Jesus. And he became a missionary. 
here's the deal, folks. We've got to stop thinking about doubt or doubters as a problem. I want to suggest they are our future missionaries. And that if you're walking through one of those questioning seasons in your life, friends, this is not the end. It's not. I want to close and just tell you an image, and then I'll take a few questions. Um, my wife and I, you know, we're in a moment in history where it feels like everybody's deconstructing for all sorts of reasons. And some of those are wise and some of them are unwise. But I see a lot of people deconstructing Christianity right now. And I have this thought. This is, this is what I think. My wife and I, we live in Oregon, and it rains here like 900 days out of the year. But the reason we live here is we can grow the most incredible tomatoes you've ever had. And what these tomatoes, I mean, they, there's nothing like them. When you've had an Oregon tomato, you, you, you can't eat an Oregon tomato and tell me there's no God. I mean, they're just so real and good and juicy. So in the summertime, we will always have somebody over for dinner. And it's inevitable. We'll have somebody over for dinner who says, we'll serve the tomatoes. And they'll say, oh, it's okay. I don't, I don't like tomatoes. And we'll serve them the tomatoes anyway. I'll say, would you just try them? And they'll eat our tomatoes and they'll go, these are tomatoes. And I'll say, these are tomatoes. And they'll be like, oh my goodness, these are incredible. And you learn something with serving the tomatoes, the Oregon tomatoes. Here's what you learn. People don't hate tomatoes. People hate fake tomatoes. And they've spent their entire life hating something that wasn't real. And I think a lot of people right now are deconstructing Christianity. And they think Christianity is the same as Jesus. And I want to say, when somebody's deconstructing Christianity, they're just saying, I don't like fake I don't like fake Jesus. And I want to say, you just haven't tasted the real thing yet. Taste Jesus. He's real. He satisfies your soul. Don't equate fake religion with the life of Jesus. Don't question. Don't, don't equate them because they're not the same. Jesus, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's so good. And here's my invitation to you. My invitation to you is whether you have questions you deconstruct, whatever it is, cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus like Thomas did. And God will bring you to a state. I know he will. He'll bring you through it. I know this God well enough to know. Okay. All right. That's what I wanted to share. I'm going to stop sharing my screen. And I want to create space for what may be questions uh, or uh, comments. We do have a question in the room. Okay, I just have a quick question yeah. about, um, you've done a lot of work with Sabbath and rest. Is there a relationship you found with, just like how like in the church, it's just so hard to rest and keep Sabbath oh. and also the amount of doubt that people face? Yeah, here's what I found. <laughs> um, when we get off of the internet and we get off of Twitter and social media and Instagram and TikTok, uh, God starts getting really loud. And I think we fill our brains up with so many voices that our brains don't know how to rest in Jesus anymore. And in the last couple of days, we've had all this stuff come out about Facebook and whistleblowers. And I think it's all very important to be said. We have too many voices in our heads. And what our brains and our souls need is they need rest. Turn your phone off for a little bit. Give yourself a day a week where you don't have a constant stream of notifications pulling you away from the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
we are better at keeping up with the Kardashians than we are keeping up with the Holy Spirit. And that's a weird thing for a Christian to be better. We, we know more about TikTok than we knew that we do the nuances of the Holy Spirit. There's a question right here that I'll, I'll answer if that's okay. And, um, and then I'll take maybe one more. Uh, this is a great question from Tammy. How can we be safe people to, who can we be, how can we be safe people to deconstruct with? Um, in my experience, um, the greatest ministry that I got to do with Phil was that when I would meet with him, I didn't have answers for him. I was with him. And I think what that did for him was it gave him a place where he could just download everything and didn't feel like he had to fix himself. And when he knew, when there was an embodied sense of love, um, um, uh, and when he had a person in the room who was willing to love him right where he was, it, it opened his heart up to, to be soft. Um, I think it's our tendency when people are going through questions, we just want to send them a YouTube clip. And I, I don't, I think that's the goal. I, I heard somebody say you can download, uh, you can download a lecture, but you can't download a friend. And to sit with someone, and to listen to them—that's a sacred, that's a sacred uh, friend right there. And by the way, I want to say, just because you got doubt or questions doesn't mean you're right. And we get—we're in this weird moment where we're like, "Wow, goodness gracious! If you got all these doubts, you're all of a sudden right." And I want to say no. Like sometimes you're doubting uh, things that you shouldn't doubt, and just because you doubt doesn't mean you're right. Like we believe in Jesus and the goal is Jesus. And sometimes we're just plain wrong, but that doesn't mean we should have answers shoved down our throats. Sometimes we need people to just sit with us. Okay. One, one, one more, one, one more question. From There's a question online actually that I, I thought it was important and wanted to summarize quickly. Um, somebody says that they've been struggling with doubt for several years um, and it's been sort of a frustrating and painful process. Um, and he or she would like to know what you would have to say to someone um, who's doubted in the context of the church, but the answer has always been just believe. Yeah. Um, don't doubt and just believe. What would you say to someone who's struggled with this for years and doesn't seem yep. to have... I would say, I would say that we should never, ever tell somebody who's doubting, just pray it out. We should never say that. That is not a response. I want to, I want to close by just commenting on the fact, number one, that Thomas for a whole week drug himself back to the community for a whole week. He kept showing up and simultaneously the disciples made room for a doubter for a whole week. Our witness of the gospel as a church to people walking through these things is they are permitted to be in our midst and to not be shamed for having legitimate questions. There's a line in Matthew 27 that says Jesus went up on a mountain and they worshiped him and yet some doubted. And what strikes me about that is Jesus made room for worshipers and doubters alike in his post-resurrection state. We need to make room for, for those and for this young man. Thank you for saying what you're saying. We need to make room for real people who have real questions and not shame them for those questions. It's critical. I got to go teach a class. I wish I didn't have to. I wish I could cancel my class tonight. Um, but this is really important to me, and I'm really grateful that I've had a chance to be with you. And would it be said about Thomas that it would be said about you that you may have questions, but may it be said of you that it is just the starting point 
of you beginning to understand you're actually a missionary and God has sent you and called you and your story isn't done. I hope you loved and were challenged by AJ's sermon. Now, let's get together and talk about it. On October 28th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, we are going to gather together to talk about deconstruction. Whether you're live in the room or live with us on Zoom, bring your questions about this sermon or doubt or deconstruction. For more information, check us out on Instagram. The link is in the show notes. If you're joining us on Zoom, the registration link is in the show notes too. Looking forward to seeing you there.